Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Matt Hawkins. He is founder and managing partner at the Entourage Effect Capital, formerly known as Cresco Capital Partners. We're going to hear the story of that. And Matt and his company, his team work on investing in legal cannabis companies, direct placements. Uh, We're going to learn a little bit more about what's going on in the cannabis industry from an investor point of view how things have changed and kind of shaken up, I think, over the last year or two. And kind of where are we? You know, the cannabis industry is obviously growing. I think everyone outside the cannabis industry thinks that its money is growing on trees. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think in any industry, capital is always tough. And certainly at this time, uh, this day and age in cannabis, it's it's always a challenge uh, finding the capital to grow your business. And it is a key part of growth. So I'm excited to get Matt's take on things, see where he sees the opportunities, what they've been focusing on, and what they think is really kind of the opportunity for investors in the cannabis space. So with that, Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you. I appreciate you having me, Bruce. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Let's do a little background first. What was, uh, give us a sense of your kind of professional background and then how cannabis came up. Tell us a little bit of the story. Sure. So I've been in private equity for over 20 years in Dallas, Texas. With a, started out with an institutional fund, been associated with a couple of family offices, cut my teeth in a, with a boutique turnaround management group where we were bundling assets and selling them to 
private buyers. I also have raised several funds on my own for varying strategies, one of which was distressed lending in the downturn and then buying multifamily assets. And then on the multifamily side, we sold that in 2014. And then looking for my next thing to do, started kind of getting back in the private lending world. And in 14 is obviously is, is, you know, our listeners will probably remember is when Colorado, Oregon, and the state of Washington all went adult use legal for cannabis. And so I really knew nothing about it at the time, but I was looking at warehouse deals in Denver, Colorado, with the owner and landlords looking to refinance their their commercial mortgages into private debts so they, so they could then lease to growers. And mm. they were paying high yields and you, know, you had the security of the uh, on a first lien with the real property. And I thought that was a, an interesting play. But I guess my luck and timing moment, Bruce, is when I realized that those yields would probably dry up at some point. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, Too good to be I, true. Uh, Too good yeah, to last. Yeah, but I, but, but I kept thinking, you know, holy shit, there's no one else. Oh, wait, can I cuss uh-huh. on this? Oh, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So, uh, <laughs> and so anyway, I uh, started looking at the actual cannabis companies themselves, thinking, well, holy cow, if I could invest in these companies, there's no one else doing this. And so I could have a first yeah. mover advantage. But that then, of course, you know, had to figure out how I was going to find them money to do that. And um, being in Dallas, Texas, in a conservative state, that mm-hmm. was, people looked at me like I was crazy, but uh, <laughs> so, somehow managed to cobble together enough money to, uh, we had a successful, you know, we raised, we had about, I guess, 10 million in fund one with about another 20 million in, in special purpose uh, vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we raised another 60 million in fund two. And now we are, uh, we've, we've, I can't say much about Fund Three because we're in the middle of our raise, and the SEC yeah. will come after me. But we're all, but but the the good news is is that we have capital to deploy now from that fund, and good. we've made sixty six investments to date in the um, since two thousand and fourteen, uh, and it's been an amazing ride. You know, we invest up and down the value chain. Uh, we touch the plant. We invest in ancillary companies. You, you name it. So yeah. we've, we've, there's probably not a vertical in the industry that we haven't either invested in or looked at. So yeah. very agnostic when it comes to the the types of deals that we look at. But it's we're very very particular about the you know the markets and the market size, obviously that we that we invest in. Yeah. yeah. Now, when you say that you know people were looking at you, you know, like you're crazy to invest in cannabis. I mean, what was this? Was this from a business point of view? Was this a kind of an ethical, moral point of view? Like, yeah, why? Yeah. What were the challenges in raising money in the early days of this? I would say in in Texas, it was probably more the latter, um, mm-hmm. in that just people, you know, thought I was gonna, you know, ruin my reputation, you know, by getting involved in something like this. I mean, heck, I had guys sit me down and. There, you know, there were old investors with me that just said, "Look, you're going to ruin your reputation, and you can't do this." And I just said, "Well, I'm going to do it." <laughs> so those same guys of, of uh, in fact, one of them is an investor in our second fund. The other one shakes his head, like admitting that he was wrong. But um, it's funny. What's well, but in all seriousness, it's it's amazing how the 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 tide has turned, even in, in with the acceptance level in such a short period of time. Yeah. Even in Texas, I think the you know you could probably do a straw poll here, and the and most uh, of the citizens would want it to be legalized. We just have a very uh, far right uh, political um, yeah. setup in our state house, so that's that's where it's, it gets a little tricky. Yeah, and and I mean, what what do you think has changed it? I mean, is this people have have seen the business opportunity? Have people kind of just understood the the plant better and its and its application? Is this just just general kind of cultural acceptance? 
what, what do you think has changed the tide here? That's those are definitely um, reasons, but I think from a just uh, you know conservatives and libertarians also, and you know just look at this and say, holy shit, how much money are these yeah. states raising from the the taxing of the, and regulation of this product? Why why can't we do this? Yeah, I mean, my God, Texas has the the lottery. So I mean, what, what I mean. Granted, this is a. I mean, it, it's they're they're they're. You could say they're both vice products. I yeah. mean, you're not, and and so, but there. I think people are also realizing that there is a medicinal benefit to this, and if you, and when used wisely, it can be it can be you know that can certainly be one way that it's uh, that it's consumed. Now, it's there's no doubt there's still psychoactive effects, and people use it to to numb themselves, just like alcohol. But um, I think studies have shown that it may not be as dangerous, and there's. Yeah. Not as many deaths occurring on the roads from people smoking or eating pot versus mm-hmm. drinking alcohol, and so it's just it's 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 a it's a combination of revenue. It's a combination of social acceptance and the the fact that it's in some of the other larger states. It's become you know it's become the norm, um, and I think also people you know even in the you know, middle to upper class are using it and using it socially. Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, as an investor, you know, when you originally saw the opportunity, I guess, what did you know was going to be a challenge in getting involved in cannabis? And then what did you realize later was going to be a challenge that you didn't know getting into it? What was kind of your learning process like? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I think obviously the hardest part has been, you know, putting together the capital simply because uh, there's just no institutional money available yet. So, all the money we've raised, which is a which is a large number for the I mean, we you know we we may not be the largest firm with capital under management, but we've you know we're one of the most prolific with the number of investments we've made, and we're certainly in the top three of you know with money under management. But it's a gnat's eyelash compared to what you know other industries have you know with respect to if you said that with the money that we have under management and makes us one of the top three firms in size you would think we would have billions and billions of dollars under management and the and the reality is we have you know over a hundred somewhat you know <laughs> yeah. so it, it's not like it's a crazy sum of money but for the industry it's huge yeah so that that's definitely been the hardest is cobbling together high net worth individual money and family office money. But I knew that. I mean, that's one thing we knew going into it that it would be difficult. But we knew if we were able to do it, we would have that first mover advantage and and the ability to get you know the right deals, you know, and have that kind of proprietary deal flow, which we do. I guess some things that I didn't expect to be as difficult is I would have expected by 2016, 17, and even into 18 that we would probably have more skilled operators enter the space. I think yeah. we're seeing that now. Um, but it took, you know, when we started in 14, hell, that's four, four or five years of operating yeah. with, without that. And so that we've had our issues in headbutting with, with management teams that we've backed. And, you know, we probably, you know, I always say that, that the underwrite of a cannabis, cannabis company is really the same as if you're underwriting a widget company. You just take out the word widget and insert cannabis because your tenants of underwriting remain the same. You're always mm-hmm. trying to back good management teams. You obviously want... You know, we've talked about market size and, you know, and, and then the ability to penetrate that market with your products and services. You know, there's the check private equity checklist that is, you know, that every firm uses. I think in the cannabis industry, we were guilty, just as were others, of perhaps being a little bit or giving too much leeway with our underwrite on management teams. We wanted them to be better suited to go after this than they probably were. And that has bitten us in the asset investors in the space. Yeah. That's changing. 
without a doubt. We're seeing really skilled operators come into the game that that haven't been there before. We, you know, for one of our companies, we just engaged a a very skilled consultant to kind of come in and give us an operational assessment, and he's been a veteran of 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 retail and distribution for for many many years outside the industry, but he's been studying cannabis you know, for the better part of three years because he knew he had to. He knew yeah. that in order to be successful in his realm of business that he was going to have to get his arms around this industry because it's a fast-moving train. And so hearing it from someone like that kind of adds extra, I don't think credibility is the word, but it just it just makes it a little bit even, it makes it feel even more real than than we already know it is. Yeah. And do you feel like like at some level because it was it was kind of general in the industry that was just kind of the surcharge of dealing of investing in cannabis was you're just going to be dealing with somewhat inexperienced you know leadership teams management teams and you just needed to ride through that or or was this do you feel like this was more of a you know something that was really holding the industry back and things were just not not going to accelerate as quickly until that changed oh i mean that's a that's a that's a tough one because i think that you know, I've been on record. I'm, you know, I'm on record here saying that you know we've I've fallen on my sword with with probably making investments with management teams that I wouldn't do again. Yeah. So part of that was just was wishful thinking. Now, having said that, there was a couple of management teams that shocked me and made us a bunch of money. So yeah. It's, yeah. and some of that was the just the rising tide of the industry and and you know getting in that early. You know, sometimes that happens and. I think we've had to work a lot harder for our returns in Fund 2 as opposed to Fund 1 because of that. Mm. Fund 1 was 14 to 7th century, 15 to, to, to early 18, we were making investments. And then Fund 2 was, you know, 18 until, you know, the latter part of 19. So those were trickier times to be investing in cannabis, but we were smarter in our underwrites. And, and I think it'll ultimately play out to where we'll generate as good a return in fund two as we did in fund one. Yeah. And give us a sense from an investor point of view, why were those time periods different? I mean, obviously we had sort of various things happening in the industry, but like, how do you characterize kind of the trajectory or the, the things you've had to kind of work through as an investor, sort of seeing the opportunities, but also dealing with market conditions? Sure. How would you kind of tell the story? Well, you know, we obviously had right in the middle of our investment here to fund one is when the, the CSC opened up the ability for Canadian companies to own U.S. assets, mm-hmm. cannabis companies. And so that obviously gave us some quick liquidity with exits to these public companies like Canopy and had, we were early investors in Acreage and GTI and Curaleaf that went public that were you know big wins for us as a result. We were able to liquidate our shares due to the volume. That changed quickly and I can't remember when it was maybe it was sometime in 18 when the when the mark the markets tanked mm-hmm. and they remained that way for a long period of time and in fact you know markets were still depressed in the cannabis industry right before covid and yeah. then when covid hit I mean I, I've said this before that it's you know I hate saying it but it's just the truth that covid's been a blessing in disguise for yeah. the cannabis industry I and mean, we've had we had companies that were on their last legs in January needing rescue financing that are now profitable yeah. And don't need any more money. I mean, it's I've never seen anything like it in my you know thirty plus years of being in business, and so yeah. it's pretty amazing. And why? I mean, what what has COVID actually done? Is it increasing demand? Did it change the regulatory framework? I mean, what what All actually the drove the change? So so yeah. you know, first and foremost, we had a huge rise in demand simply because people in the very beginning were stockpiling, and and, yeah. obviously, and you know, look in, in recessionary times, vice products are winners, and so yep. that was one thing. Secondly, you had a 
a, a very quick conversion of the of the illicit market into the legalized one because it was safer. Uh, the regulatory climate was was laxed. California, for example, you, where we were able to get delivery and curbside pickup, and you know, obviously, we were open because of the essential service designation. I mean, that was huge. Yeah. Um, if we had not been an essential business, these companies would have shut down. We don't have the kind of we don't have access to working capital lines or um, lines of credit from, from banks that would allow us to, to stay open. I mean, it yeah. just, it, it wouldn't have happened. So, so that was, that was the big thing. Then the next thing you have is a, the fact that the state's now realizing, well, wait a minute, now that we're converting this illicit market and sales are up, why aren't we focused on trying to convert more of this? Mm-hmm. So hopefully states will start to realize that the the less the less of a burden on tax at the existing legalized companies will then translate into more tax dollars at the state house because you're converting a larger market. Yeah. I mean the math is pretty simple, but it's sometimes getting politicians to realize that is a hard chore. The pandemic has done that. The pandemic has also opened up states across the nation that were probably two to three years away from doing that previously. And then more importantly, I think we're two to three years closer to some type of federal legalization, or at least quasi-legalization, because of COVID as well. Yeah. Simply because every single layer of government needs new sources of revenue. Yeah, just financially, kind of the financial demands will will accelerate those processes. Yep. And I guess so. You know, many many cannabis businesses have benefited from COVID and have expanded and are doing well, but not all of them. Uh, where have you seen some of the cannabis sector or you know cannabis businesses being distressed? What's causing some of the distress? What are you What are you seeing on the downside of this market? Well, I'm not seeing a lot of downside right now. Yeah. Just because what I just said. I think yeah. prior to that, the downside was there was a there was no access to capital. It was just players like us that were that were providing capital and we and we don't have limitless funds. Mm-hmm. You were seeing some loan to own strategies pop up with high yields that you know really, really egregious yields out there. Um, those notes were coming due. Mm-hmm. You had consolidation. Uh, you had deals that weren't getting done because egos were in the way with <laughs> these consolidations. You had yeah. no liquidity from the stock markets. So you really had, and then you had stagnant stagnant growth, really. Well, yeah, all that has changed, and it's almost 100% driven by COVID. Yeah. And where are the big opportunities at this point? Like, what? where do you see? Is it just anything related to cannabis, or do you see well, parts, uh, parts of the uh, cannabis uh, market being more it's still, interesting? Yeah, I mean, you know, we focus on the large markets. I mean, look, we're... I think having medicinal markets in smaller states is, and, and even and even recreational availability in, in smaller states is great. But we but it, but we can't we can't put five million dollars to work in Oklahoma the same way we can in California. It's just yeah. that simple. So that that's we focus on the big states, and obviously with you know Massachusetts coming online, Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, now New Jersey. I mean those are those get our attention. You know the the medicinal the medicinal legality in Florida gets our attention. California, we have a huge footprint of investments there. And so we're going to try to build scale there with what we've already done by, you know, putting companies together, you know, in advance of legalization. You know, we think that's a huge play by, you know, if you can, you know, build companies to over 100 million in sales and closer to 200 million, you're going to get quicker exits when institutional capital and or uh, the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange start listing uh, cannabis companies. And then finally, when pharma, uh, nutraceuticals, alcohol, tobacco, spirits, you name it, all those companies are starting to jump in the game too. I mean, you're, when that happens, 
And all it takes is quasi-legalization, probably with something like the States Acts, to where the federal government just says, okay, we're not going to make the decision for you, but you make it on your own. Mm-hmm. Even if product doesn't cross state lines, you're talking about tens of billions of dollars, if not $50 billion, coming into the industry in year one from yeah. all these different you know, constituencies of, of sources of capital. Yeah. I mean, what what is how's that going to shake things up though? I mean, like that's a lot of capital very quickly. There's got to be some you know seismic shifts that are going to happen in the market. No, there's no yeah, there's no doubt about it. I think that it'll you know you're going to see crazy consolidation. You're probably going to see a few of the larger MSOs that'll that'll stay and just become giants, and then they'll mm-hmm. you'll see other you know some of the medicinal plays get gobbled up some of the pharma type plays get gobbled up you're going to see brands that are going to become part of CPG companies you're going to see I mean you know I, I it's hard to have a crystal ball but I think yeah. you're still going to see multiple sectors from I mean look you also have the you've got agriculture that's going to come in yeah. after some big of the, the the big ads can come after genetics and mm-hmm. biosynthesis plays I mean there it really doesn't stop you have you're going to have SAS Operators come after the all the come after the all the the SaaS related. It's just it is in any of those companies that have customer lists, they're gonna get they're gonna get bought because yeah. it, 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 it's it's better to buy that list versus just try to go get it yourselves. Yeah. And so what's what's the play right now for cannabis companies? Like, is this just you know getting that right kind of set of assets and customer list and positioning so that you're very attractive and highly valued to one of these big big companies coming into cannabis oh, space? It, or it, like it's, how, it's exactly that. Point? It's it's scale yeah. up as fast as you can. Get have as many customers as you can, whether doing it organically or buying other people or but that, that's the name of the game. You know, for retailers, it's it's. Uh, how many dispensaries do you have? What's your cultivation? What's your vertical integration with your mm-hmm. cultivation play? Where's your manufacturing brands? You know, how many states are you in? You know, service providers. How many? How many customers do you have? I mean, it really is that. It's pretty basic stuff in advance of of someone coming in to write a big check. Yeah, and and as you're looking at opportunities, what's what's your investment thesis like? You mentioned management teams, you know, being a big one. What are you looking for there? What else are you looking for in terms of investment opportunities? Well, first and foremost, it's world-class operators uh, that we want to back. Fund three is going to be a bit different in that that the whole strategy is going to be, you know, how can we build scale quickly, whether it's within our own portfolio or companies within our ecosystem that we're familiar with, operators we're familiar with that we want to back and put assets behind them. I mean, it's but again, it's all about how quickly we can build that scale in advance of what's going to happen in the next three to five years. And what what do you see as being kind of the core kind of capabilities or experience or, or, or what do you look for that is going to tell you this company rather than this other company is better positioned to be able to kind of, you know, gobble up that market, you know, get get to that scale quicker and, and maximize their their valuation. Well, obviously the state where they're in is important and the market size of that state. Because if you know, if, if there's a brand that's in California, Colorado, and Massachusetts, that's gonna have a, a much, much bigger attraction to us versus a brand that's in Arkansas and Oklahoma. So, and again, no knock on those medicinal states are just not as, not as big. Yeah, the market's and, just and, not there. And, and until we're in a situation where you have nationwide state-to-state movement of product, um, that's just the way it's going to be. So that's real. I mean, really, it's about, you know, which markets we want to focus on. I've, I've mentioned the big ones already. I mean, those are where we're spending our time. And we've got our ecosystem of, of not only investments, but partners and co-investors. I mean, we're readily equipped and ready to, to take advantage of any and all 
scale building opportunities, regardless of the vertical. Mm-hmm. Any um, any particular other than the kind of national federal legalization or or at least um, descheduling or decriminalization? Any particular kind of regulatory issues that you're watching on a state by state level, or you know things that are going to impact you know the growth of some of these markets? Sure, I mean I think the most important thing. I mean the Safe Banking Act is a is a big big deal. I mean yeah. that that could be the trigger, and I think that I think we're the closest to getting that thing over the goal line. You know, obviously, if if New York decides to legalize, that would be a, a a big a big win. But it's really just, I mean, the tailwinds are in our favor for so many different things, and I think it's just uh, it's the first time we've really had tailwinds since early early on. And so I think if we just continue to keep our heads down and, and work hard, those things are gonna are gonna work themselves out. Yeah, and I mean, you you mentioned a couple of these states that are that are you know recently passed or at least ballot initiatives or you know voters have, have indicated they want to bring in adult use. What are the ones that are particularly interesting for you? Why and and what are you looking for? Sure. What do you anticipate? Well, Arizona and New Jersey were the crown jewels of this past November yeah. for sure, and. You know, we have we touch both of those states through just existing investments in the assets they own, and so I would imagine we're going to continue to look to increase our footprint, especially in um, in New Jersey, because of what's you know we do have with our relationships on the East Coast. It just makes sense for us. So clearly, those are the are the two winners, big winners. But again, New Jersey going means that that means that New York and Connecticut will probably soon follow. Yeah, yeah, it seems like it's a, a bit of a, a domino, lead domino here in the in the East Coast. I, do you see these as? I'm curious how you see these markets playing out relative to some of the existing markets, particularly on the West Coast. Uh, do you do you anticipate they're going to be structured differently? What do, what do you kind of envision as being kind of similarities and differences between some of these new markets on the East Coast relative to the West Coast traditional ones? Yeah, I think that most of the new Adult use states have learned the, the the lessons from the past in terms of how to how to set up your regulatory arms and, and how to go about it without getting stuck in the morass of, of red tape. I mean, Massachusetts took forever to get set up, and I think you know states have learned from that. You know, Colorado being the first, you know, decided to just effectively throw shit at the wall and see what would stick in terms of their license issuances. And and now the streets are littered with worthless licenses. Oregon went the other extreme where they were, you know, issuing, you know, limited licenses, but took forever to to set their program up. Washington learned that you can't just have investors, you know, from within their state because there was not enough money to support the all the the need for all the companies you know investment dollars in that one state mm-hmm. i think so most of the other states have come online even california has has done you know a decent job recently of just allowing for you know merit based licenses you know i i think some of the social equity aspects of issuing licenses are good on one hand they're tricky on the other yeah but for the most part i think with especially when you're talking about Folks that have been in prison for you know nonviolent crimes that are you know resulting in just smoking marijuana. I mean, like that's huh. ridiculous. And so yeah. that, that that that's different than someone who committed a homicide that somehow is using this as a method to get a license. I think that's completely erroneous. But yeah. that's a whole other conversation. But for the most part, I think all these states are realizing that you know limited licensing, merit based, are align everyone the way you should and let it just grow organically, you know, with the licenses grow organically when you need to grow based on the market size. Oh. And that, that aligns the operator, the investor and the state 
because no one wants to lose a license and something like that. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned in the beginning, one of the big challenges was, you know, finding, you know, experienced operators to be able to come in and run these larger companies is like, how is this getting solved? Is this, we're now just developing this capability inside cannabis? Are people coming from other industries? What industries are they coming from? Where do you see this talent need being filled? Yeah, I think CPG has been a big boost. Retail has been a big boost. But then you also have folks that have been involved in logistics. I mean, heck, we've, one of our companies is run by a former high-level logistics guy at Amazon. Mm-hmm. So there's, I just think the, the level of talent is becoming more mainstream as the industries become more mainstream. And that's just, that's just what happens in the evolution of a, you know, of a nascent industry. I mean, we're, we're maturing, you know, by leaps and bounds in every single way possible within, uh, within the industry and, and, and quality management teams is, is, is part of that. Yeah. You mentioned that most of the capital seems to be coming from high net worth individuals, family offices. Mm -hmm. Where do you think that's going to play out? I think, are you going to get new entrants, some of these institutional investors coming in when, how? I don't think, I mean, we're going to have new entrants. We're seeing it with larger family offices sticking their toes in the water. And obviously mm-hmm. for us, having a track record, that helps. I honestly don't see big institutional capital coming in until there's a change in, in, yeah. uh, in federal legality. Or you know, maybe a Safe Banking Act passage allows for you know, some more institutional investment from a public company side with you know, if, for example, the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange allow listings at that point but mm-hmm. that that's that's really the the shoe that drops once the nasdaq and new york stock exchange open up then that's that's the game changer yeah just change the capital access to capital matt this has been a pleasure if people want to find out more about you about the work that you do what's the best place to get that information sure it's uh you can go to eecpartners.com or you can email me at mhawkins at eecpartners.com Great. I'll make sure that the link and email is in the show notes so people can get that information. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been a real pleasure. You bet, Bruce. Thank you. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.